Showtime, and welcome to Night Fright. Tonight, we've got Wayne Franks, all the way from Montreal, a military reenactor. He's had many paranormal experiences on military sites. He has also had his own experiences, going to relate some different types of experiences that fellow reenactors have said to him. It's going to be a wild one, folks. Strap in and hang on. Here we go. There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome. Night Fright, your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. And tonight from Montreal, we've got Wayne Franks on the phone. Hi Wayne, are you there my friend? Hi Brent. I can you? hear your voice. How are you doing? Good. Can you hear me okay now? Oh, great. Okay, great. Uh, Wayne, uh, I was just uh, promoing uh, you just before, and I was saying that you're a military reenactor. You've been around to many, many reenactment sites right across North America. You've heard stories. You've witnessed stories. You've had your own experiences. Maybe we can start off with a, a pretty spooky story, actually, that you related to me that took place in your own house one evening when you woke up in the middle of the night. And you heard moccasins and marching going on yeah. <laughs> right through your house. I was wondering if you can, just to start off, uh, sure. tell the folks that story, and then I'm going to ask you how you got into reenacting. Okay. Well, let me preface all this by saying that prior to having the auditory illusions, hallucinations, auditory experiences that I had in my home in the early 90s, I always... Uh, thought that the people who worked at these sites, uh, like historic uh, Fort Ticonderoga, etc., etc., they would relate stories to me, uh, like, you know, uh, which I'll get into later, and I always made wisecracks, like, well, you shouldn't be drinking on the job, and stuff like this, and they weren't greeted <laughs> very, you know, well, you know? Yeah. And uh, I didn't uh, really place much faith in uh, in the things that they told me that they heard, or they they saw, I just thought it was um, illusion. People fooling themselves mm-hmm. because they were tuned into a certain time or period. But, you know, in, in our case here, we, we live in a home. It was built um, in 1964, so it certainly isn't a very old home at all by any means. Um, here in the southwest corner of uh, the island of Montreal, and uh, um, it's about, a suburb uh, called Villasal, right? Uh, Villasal, yeah, named after Villasal. In fact, he left for his explorations not more than a couple of kilometers down the street from here in, in the home of uh, Charles Le Moyne, uh, and it was uh, built in 1669. Still uh, standing, by the way. 
So, uh, I didn't know that, Wayne. You're filling yep. me in on all this stuff. I didn't know. A special place, yeah. Le Bear oh. Le Moyne uh, house uh, is what was referred to as a Lachine Museum. It's just at the right at the border of Lachine. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Now I know where it is. Yeah. Lachine, of course, was the joke. They called yeah. it China because, this you know, Lachine was leaving there. Yeah, so yeah. this is a very historic area. Why don't and you tell that story about Lachine just so folks, because uh, oh, I know. Oh, yeah. Okay, so LaSalle and his explorations, uh, he had set off, found himself down the Gulf of of, uh, of Mexico. Of course, he didn't have any idea of, of what was the route to China, so that was his mission. And uh, he was uh, derided here at home by uh, by the habitants who were uh, living, uh, you know, in this area and uh, down in what was was now old Montreal. And it was Ville Marie, I guess, in those days, or maybe they just started to call it uh, Montreal at the time. And uh, they decided to call the place where he uh, stayed Lachine, which is China, basically, mm-hmm. just, to, just to rib him a little bit. <laughs> uh, LaSalle himself wasn't a, wasn't a very, uh, shall we say, socially skilled, uh, adept person. Uh, very intelligent, a very uh, tall man for his time with very um, very strong uh, legs and arms. And uh, he did a lot of walking. He walked all over uh, the east coast of North America besides, you know, sailing and all this stuff. So he was a pretty imposing figure, and people loved to hate the man. And uh, that's... Um, that's how Lachine uh, became to be known as the parish of Lachine. And uh, 1912, uh, Villa Sal was created from the parish of uh, of Lachine. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, of course this area has seen uh, many many uh, actions against the Indians and or uh, Aboriginals or North American. Uh, First Nations, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. First Nations, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, not too far from my home is is what we call in LaSalle, LaSalle Boulevard, which is Boulevard Saint Joseph and Lachine, which used to be the King's Road, the Chemin du Roi, from the French regime uh, to the British regime, and every mile, in fact, uh, at some stretches of this mm-hmm. road, you can see little like tombstones, little millbourne or what they call milestones, and you would pay a toll. And this road is also a road that soldiers had marched up and down on their way to, uh, uh, well, they couldn't go through the rapids, so they would have to march from downtown or the, uh, the old Montreal through to Lachine to embark on boats to go further, you know. Mm-hmm. And they would be passing, uh, you know. Around what era was this, uh, Wayne? Uh, the late 1600s. Okay. Okay. So the Lemoyne Le Bear House was built, like I said, in 1669. Mm-hmm. So starting in the 1670s was uh, the time where you would see, you know, a, a, enough people uh, here from 1665 with the Les Filles de Roi, the king's daughters, who were sent from France to marry these uh, soldiers and itinerant uh, fur traders. Then you start to see the population start to build up. So from the 1670s, you slowly start to see the population uh, rise and and spread out from uh, from the actual core of the village of uh, Ville Marie of Montreal, old Montreal now, to areas further towards uh, where the rapids are here, where they would do a little transshipment thing and um, transship uh, from with by cart uh, from ships that came in from from Europe, from old Montreal to to Lachine, where they could 
you know, travel on and bypass the rapids by land. So this was an area that was frequented by uh, natives and uh, Europeans alike, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, getting back to 1992, I believe it was, it would be, oh, about 2.30 in the morning when um, I heard uh, outside my bedroom door like a scurrying of several pairs of feet um, on, a, on a hardwood floor, like a, like in socks or soft shoes, you know. And the, the sound started to, as I listened, and I said, what could my dog be doing to make this type of noise? Yeah, you know, like, blame the dog. Like, yeah, <laughs> off the sheets, but blame the dog, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> 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 and uh, you get my drift? Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all too and, well, uh, all too well. Yeah, yeah. And so you know, uh, I, I'm being uh, very fond of uh, electroacoustics and acoustics in general in music. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening very closely to the textures of the sound, and I realized that the sound began to Doppler effect itself, Dopplerize, and started to go around and around and around and around and go faster, 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 and fade to nothing. Whoa. So I opened my door, looked at my dog, and said, what the heck were you doing, you know? And he's looking around like, I don't know. And nobody else was awake at the time. And and I thought about it for days and days and days and weeks and weeks what that sound could be. But it sounded like scurrying footsteps going and like Dopplerizing itself. Did you think and, it could be maybe a radio? It could be the TV was left on or maybe one of the kids or something? Nothing. Nothing like that, eh? No. Everybody was asleep at the time, and, wow. uh, except for the dog, you know. And, yeah. Uh, he probably only woke up when I opened the door, and he didn't know what was going on. And uh, uh, it was only a couple of months later that another incident really brought home what I think that I may have heard. You're listening to Night Fright, Wednesday nights from 10 to midnight on CKLU 96.7 FM. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. And that was the fact that I I awoke to the sound of maybe a dozen hobnail-shoed men or or Mm -hmm. soldiers or whatever, about 12 of these people or whoever, marching in cadence, in 18th century cadence, one step per second. And it came in through the front of the house and went through the back. It was barump, 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 right through the house. Oh, my God. Now, uh, was there a drummer or anything that you could nope. hear? It was just the feet. Just just hard, hard leather shoes coming down on my hardwood floor. Whoa. Just right through. And my daughter, my uh-huh. eldest daughter, ducked under the covers in her room, she told me later, because she thought that somebody, some people were going to barge in. And uh, I didn't even bother to get up. I was just mesmerized by the sound, and I just said, this can't be happening. And my son had actually opened the door and looked out down into towards the kitchen and looked at the dog and said, you know, what was that? Or, you know, ex- What's going made some on? sort of a, maybe a self-exclamation at the time. So... I mean, I wasn't the only crazy one. You know, there were two other people who witnessed that sound, 
and uh, it it became apparent to me then that I must have heard a troop of ghost soldiers marching through my house. Whoa! There's no other explanation for it. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. You know, two thirty in the morning. I mean. Uh, there's nothing going on that, that that sounds like that. There's no earthquake because the floor didn't yeah. move, the house yeah. didn't shake. There was no TV radio on, nothing, absolutely nothing. Was there any physical remnants in the morning when you got up? Was there any mm, nothing on the no. floor? Nothing, eh? Uh, nothing at all. Nothing at all. I just asked everybody if they heard that. And, yeah, you yeah. know, those were the only other witnesses of of the sound, if you can witness a sound, you know? Well, sure you can, yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was it. So then it made it very apparent to me that what I had probably heard two months prior were possibly moccasin footprint, the footsteps going around and around in circles, because that, that would oh, be the only thing that, yeah. that I would think that it would, could be tied in. I didn't quite tie it into the 18th century or 17th century yeah, or prior because the natives have been here for 20,000 years. And uh like a, maybe dancing around a fire or something or a uh, ceremony. Just just an un how we could say an unorganized scurrying of footsteps as opposed to two months later, you know, a yeah. hard hard-soled shoed um Soldiers or somebody, a group of people, a platoon, whatever, a dozen maybe, marching in 18th century cadence from the front of the house through to the rear of the house. And that was what had happened. That's exactly, exactly what I had, exactly what I had heard. Isn't that incredible? What a story, Wayne. You'd mentioned your, your, your kids had, had heard the same thing. When you discussed it with them, uh, what was their reaction? Did they smell anything? Was, you know, they often say when you see a ghost, it's cold and all those, uh, the typical scenarios. Was there anything similar like that? Just a pure oral okay. audio experience. Mm-hmm. And that's what it stayed at. And it, we never had heard anything similar before. Or since. Or since. That or was the since. last one. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's been, uh, what, 1992, so... 15 years or more? Yeah. Just let me tell folks who you are. Folks, you're listening to Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland, and we're speaking with Wayne Franks tonight. He's uh, a historian, and uh, he's also a military reenactor, and he's relaying some of the stories he's heard and experienced. And he just relayed one of those stories. He's calling from Montreal. He's been a reenactor. Geez, how long have you been a reenactor, Wayne? Uh, started actively in the field in 1984. And what got you in there? What led you to be a reenactor? Okay, well, I guess uh, two things. One was always had, uh, always having had an interest in uh, the 18th century, and I think mm-hmm. what it was was Walt Disney's uh, Wonderful World of Disney where they had, like, Daniel Boone and David oh, Crockett yeah, and all yeah. these great historical s- stories and the series mm-hmm. from the, the 50s and the last of the Mohicans and um, all these great, mm-hmm. great Flintlock-era uh, programs and series. And uh, everybody, when I was five years old, had, like, a Davy Crockett uh, coonskin cap, you know? That was what they sold That's in right. the stores, you mm-hmm. know? And uh, <clears throat> I really felt at home in that era for some reason, and... I had never known that it existed as a hobby. 
until reenacting that is until about 1975 and i saw an article in the paper that some guys were marching doing montgomery's march to quebec from the colonies to quebec city to try and take quebec from the british uh, for the americans mm-hmm. and um, so I said, gee, yeah, some people are doing that. You know, I thought they had just gotten together and marched up there and uniform and whatever. Just for something and, to do. Yep, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, I was working at an elementary school in Lachine at the, in the early 80s. Um, I was uh, introduced to a young chap there who uh, was doing a, um, a speech on, um, well, it was a public speaking contest. So he was doing it on his father's hobby. When he brought in the picture, he showed me his dad in uniform, and I said, how do I do that? Mm. And uh, mm-hmm. that's how it started. And my my now friend, Larry, he was the happened to be the only reenactor on the island of Montreal who was not connected in any way with Parks Canada. I see. So how fluky is that? Yeah. So that's how we met, and we we started off and got into his regiment the following year. And uh, and what regiment is that, Wayne? Originally out of Ottawa, it was founded by um, by the head of the uh, by the then head of the uh, of the War Museum. It was called the King's Rangers. It was an offshoot of uh, Rogers Rangers, but oh, I've uh, heard of instead, them. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Instead of being uh, mm-hmm, from the mm-hmm. uh, French and Indian War. They carried over and reformed uh, in the American Revolution. They were loyal to the uh, to the British, and originally it was under Robert Rogers. He got too drunk and too in debt, thrown in jail <laughs> in Britain, uh, a debtor's jail. And then his brother James had to take over command, and uh, they were disbanded in the early uh, 1780, 1782, 1783, 1784. Settled in the Bay of Quinte area in uh, in um, Ontario. Were given tracts of land there as uh, as United Empire loyalists, you know, as discharged soldiers. So um that's how I um how I gained interest and how um how I got into the um the actual hobby in the first place. So I was familiar with the sounds and sights of um of history by by doing that on the weekends. So when I heard these these sounds uh, apparently over a period of time it like dawned on me this is what I've been hearing. Hmm. Nothing else matched. Except that. Now, yeah. you also mentioned at the beginning of the show, incidentally, folks, we're speaking with a historian, military historian Wayne Franks from Montreal, and Wayne is relaying some stories from his military reenactments and also his own personal experiences. At the beginning of the show, Wayne, you had mentioned that when you spoke with these people from the, the parks, the various parks and things, and they were relating their own paranormal stories, you were hesitant on believing them, kind of discarding them because they were perhaps, for lack of a better term, they might have been inebriated. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I thought they were just maybe um, really not uh, inebriated, but maybe just uh, overly passionate about what they did at the parks, at the, at the historic parks or at the forts or mm-hmm. at the site or at the museums. Have you since changed just... your mind, Wayne? Uh, yes. Stated? I can tell you. There's, yeah. there's no question that, yeah, I've definitely changed my outlook that, uh, um, as I would tell anyone, there are explanations for everything. There is a, if there's a, if there is a cause, there is a reason. And, um, that's very well put. We just don't understand 
the reason. You know, how can that happen? How can that sound mm -hmm. be mm -hmm. created so vividly in my house in front of other people out of nowhere? We didn't see anything because the sound had, you know, passed through the house both times, you know, they had, the sound had dissipated mm -hmm. before anybody had taken a look to see if they could see anything. But um, certainly um, for people who are working at historic parks and all that, I kind of retroactively have to give them my um, apologies, my sincerest apologies for um, getting a ride out of them, more or less, uh, because uh, what they had to tell me was from their point of view as close to being uh, an actual thing than 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 what I had interpreted in my mind. I just thought it was like, they, mm -hmm. ah, they heard something, you know? Uh, or Fort Ticonderoga, which is one of the most haunted places in the world. Oh, can you tell uh, some stories about that oh. that you've heard? Oh, yeah, Ticonderoga. You're listening to Night Fright, Wednesday nights from 10 to midnight on CKLU 96.7 FM. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. Well, Ticonderoga, if you're uh, familiar with, uh, who is the poet now? Very famous uh, poet in Scotland. Oh, yeah, I know uh, what you mean. Uh, he, I can there's a it poem now. called mm. Ticonderoga. It's about Duncan. Uh, gee, I should have been more prepared for that. That's okay. I, I and, kind of pulled that out of the hat. Where is Ticonderoga for the folks that yeah, don't know? Ticonderoga is in upstate New York. And it was famous for it for which war? Well, Fort Carillon was built by the French in 1755. It was built by Charles, uh, what's his name, uh, Chartier de l'Opinière. Uh, Michel Chartier de l'Opinière was built in 1755. It was called Carillon because the um, the waters around the southern part of Lake Champlain and the northern neck of Lake George, the rushing waters sound like chimes. So hmm. it was called Fort, Car Fort Carillon. And uh, 1758, it, uh, they successfully repelled the British, and I just reenacted the uh, 250th anniversary of that uh, battle uh, last June. Congratulations. Oh, it was fun. Uh, PBS has, has done a documentary on it. It should be out next year. Fantastic. I'm going to look for you. Yeah. And uh, the bottom line is that uh, it fell the very next year to the British, who renamed it Ticonderoga. And uh, it just so happened that the, the previous year, this chap, uh, Duncan Campbell, could it be his name? I can't remember now. He had a uh, very strange event. Um, and this kind of like sets the whole mood for Ticonderoga because he uh, was a traveler. came to his castle and uh, he let him in and uh, gave him uh, refuge for the night. And the next day he left. And the very next night, I believe it was, a ghost of someone he knew visited him and said that he should not have given quarter to this man because he had killed him that previous night. Oh, my God. And he said that uh, you will die at a place called Ticonderoga. And so Duncan Campbell or Cameron, whatever his name was, uh, he just... Well, it was shook him up greatly, but he knew of no such place, and there was no way that he would ever know where Ticonderoga was. Mm -hmm. But 
sure enough, he had to go with his regiment, and he died in 1758 there at Ticonderoga. Oh, gee. And he found out on the way over that that it was called Ticonderoga by the uh, natives, uh, but he, they were always referring to taking Car- Fort Carillon, so he was thinking, mm-hmm. oh, well, we're going to fight at Carillon. And then they told him, well, the natives called the place Ticonderoga, and his blood ran cold. No kidding. I think I would have yeah. died right there from a heart attack. Can yeah. you imagine? So that just sets, uh, sets it off right there. So 1759, the French uh, basically abandoned the fort, and they abandoned the fort to the British, and uh, who uh, subsequently uh, conquered uh, Quebec, uh, really at the Plains of Abraham in 1759. And by 1760, they'd taken control of Montreal, and uh, the colony of New France pretty well capitulated to Britain uh, right then and there in 1763. They uh, they signed the peace treaty, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was a very uh, integral fort. It was like all other forts on the main highway of the day, which is a river. Which is the river, yeah. Yeah. And you're 100 and, yards from the river, the St. Lawrence River, I should say. And it controlled, uh, that fort controlled the uh, comings and goings between south of uh, uh, Lake Champlain mm-hmm. and northern uh, Fort George, uh, Lake George. So you couldn't get by there. And Fort George actually was at the southern part of, the, of uh, Lake George. And uh, a little bit further north, you had um, Crown Point uh, or Fort St. Frederick. There were two forts built. Uh, the British built a fort just after the French, after they beat the French. And then at the top, you had Illimat. You had a blockhouse up at Illimat at the top of the lake. So um, the lake was pretty well covered by uh, by fortifications, and um, Ticonderoga was uh, bought. The site was actually bought by uh, a very uh, wealthy philanthropist uh, way back in the 1800s by the name of Pell. Wayne, can you hang on to that thought for a second? We're coming up to the bottom of the hour. I'm just going to take a quick break for three and a half minutes. Don't go anywhere. I won't. Okay. Folks, we're speaking with Wayne Franks. You're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM. Wayne Franks is a military historian. He is also a military reenactor, and he's relating some stories to us of the paranormal. His own experience is also in his own home. It's a fascinating subject because we had Michelle Desrochers on, and she was relating uh, military reenactment stories that she had heard of the War of 1812. And when we come back from the break, I'm going to ask Wayne, what is it about military sites that seems to attract military um, ghosts. You know, I'm going to ask him what he thinks the reasons are. There must be a plethora of reasons. This next song I'm going to play for the troops over in Afghanistan. It's called CFB Kandahar. And the reason why we can have a show like this is because those guys put their lives on their line every day. And if it wasn't for those guys, we certainly wouldn't be living in beautiful Sudbury or beautiful Montreal in peace and tranquility, where my biggest choice today was just whether to get a large coffee or a small one. We owe these guys everything. This is called CFB Kandahar. We'll be back in three and a half minutes.
You're listening to Night Fright, Wednesday nights from 10 to midnight on CKLU 96.7 FM. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. And we are back, folks. Tonight we're speaking with Wayne Franks. Wayne Franks is a military historian. He's also a military reenactor. And this is where it gets really cool, because Wayne has had lots of paranormal experiences, both on and off the reenactment field. He's had some at home, and he's going to be relaying some stories about Fort Ticonderoga, which is upper state New York, and various reenactment sites right around North America. You're also listening to CKLU 96.7 FM, and we are now streaming, folks, if you can... Get to your internet. You can reach us at www.cklu.ca and just click on the little link there that says streaming. And if you have some questions for Wayne, you could email me at nightfrightshow at gmail.com. Nightfrightshow at gmail.com. We're back with Wayne right now. How you doing, Wayne? Fine, Brent. Good, 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 good. Uh, just before the break, we were talking um, a little bit about uh, some more experience you've had, and I wonder if we can just pick up on that. Sure. As I was saying, Pell, um, uh, very wealthy uh, mm-hmm. beneficiary of, the, of, um, of history, he bought the site of Fort Ticonderoga, which was reduced to uh, ruins because the, the French had blown part of it up, and uh, uh, it had... Uh, of course, seen some service during the American Revolutionary War and uh, was in pretty bad shape because what people do to forts is they take the stones and building materials and build their own homes with it. So oh, it was, uh, yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. these are all dressed stones. Yeah, so it beats quarry. You know, they're quarried and they're dressed stone, mm-hmm. exactly in the timbers from the roof yeah. and the tiles and all that, and these are all pilfered, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, don't forget, at the time, there's no historical value to anything. Of course. Because it's it's, to them, it's the present. Yes, yeah, that's right. You know, so Pell bought the fort, and he bought all the land that you could see from the fort around the lake. So that vista is uninterrupted. Interesting. And uh, they proceeded to rebuild the fort. Uh, around the turn of the century, they started, I believe it was around 1909, when they started putting things together. And uh, by the 20s, 30s, 40s, they had uh, quite a bit of it reconstructed. And then after the war, of course, was the big boom of highways and, you know, interstates and Mm -hmm. people driving and, you know, um, the baby boom. And they really turned that into a great uh, educational tourist destination for historians. Interesting. And, And for kids who like forts and just to run around with those fake wooden muskets that they yeah, 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 yeah. used to sell, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, they had rebuilt the fort, and um, what they what they do, of course, they have, um, they have some costume interpreters, but mostly what they have is a fife and drum corps, and they have kids from the local area, Crown Point, uh, Ticonderoga, or whatever, and they pay the kids for the summer to do uh, fife and drum uh, corps there. Well, that's a and great have, summer gig, eh? Yep. That'd be and, fun. Uh, yeah, I know a lot of the kids who uh, who became reenactors just because they had a summer job there. They have, like I say, costume interpreters and uh-huh. volunteers to uh, to work there. And uh, I think my first encounter with a story 
before anything had happened to me, of course, <laughs> was I kind of like um, brought up the imbibing at that time, which was kind of out of place. But it was like probably late in the 80s. I was there doing a historical weekend, mm-hmm. and one of the ladies had said to me that she was working late one night at the fort in uh, a room just uh, above where the mess hall used to be. And this fort is reconstructed according to the plans, you know. So it, within a few inches of um, of being correct all over, you know, because we actually do have the plans extant uh, today. So she was working in the in the office or in the room above, and often she would hear like a clamoring of dishes and of men and joking and and talking and laughing. And she's and supposed cheering. to be alone. Uh, you yeah. see, I would have been out of there right then. Whoosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, uh, yeah, so uh, me too. And uh, yeah. she would just uh, uh, put her head down the stairs and just ask them to hold it down a bit because she's trying to get her work done. That's funny. And, uh, yeah, and she says they're all over the place, these and whatever, and uh, spirits or entities or or time travelers, whatever. Whatever they and are. And that they're, uh, they're not a threatening thing because that was my first impression. I think I told her just as much as I would be uh, lickety-split out of there, you know. But uh, she says they're not in any way threatening at all. Wow. And there's a famous chair there, mm-hmm. um, Sir William uh, John Johnson. Sir William Johnson. Sir William Johnson was the um, British liaison officer with the Native Indians. And uh, he was from Ireland, a wealthy landowner. And he had land in central New York, and he was, of course, loyal to the British, mm-hmm. up to the beginning of the Revolution, where he had just missed the beginning of the Revolution. He had died in 1774. His son, Sir John Johnson, took over uh, his post. And Sir William's chair and his safe is up in the fort on the say second floor i believe and he was seen in his blended scarlet tunic sitting in his chair you're kidding in his irish brogue and he was just you know story yeah. after story about the fort at any rate the um the fort interpreter the fort guide was downstairs and they're just standing basically at the door you know it's a basically uh-huh. uh, many times it's just a self tour upstairs anyway and uh, people came down and said boy you know that costume interpreter upstairs <laughs> man does he know a lot about this fort he actually spoke and, with him wow yeah. holy cow and so she said well um, what do you mean well there's a guy in a red red coat and he's sitting in the chair up there and he's been telling fantastic stories about the fort and she said oh well we don't have the costume interpreter upstairs you're listening to night fright wednesday nights from 10 to midnight on cklu 96.7 fm your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio and now your host brent holland whoa goosebump time the goosebump time. He's been seen in the chair talking to people. He's also been seen standing beside his safe and over his shoulder is a portrait of George Washington, just very coincidentally. And uh, to people who have seen him, he's as solid as you or I would be to Mm -hmm. appear to somebody. Mm -hmm. Folks, we're speaking with Wayne Franks, military historian and military reenactor, and he's telling us some 
pretty creepy stories tonight about stories that he's heard around when he's been doing reenactments and also his own personal experiences. You're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM and we're streaming now on the internet, www.cklu.ca. Just hit the streaming button. You got some questions for Wayne, just email me at nightfrightshow at gmail.com. Wayne, I want you to speculate for a second now. Sure. Why do you think, I mean, there seems to be a plethora of sightings at military reenactment sites. Gettysburg comes to mind. Ticonderoga comes to mind. Uh, The War of 1812 comes to mind. What's your speculation on that? Well, there is a reason, and there is an explanation. We just haven't discovered what those are as yet. Um, I don't know if it's the, uh, if you... You know, a, a religious person in one way would say, well, that's proof of life, uh, you know, after death. Another religious person would say, that's the devil playing with your mind. Mm. Um, other people would say, like me, would say, well, this could be a very freakish time warp. Some physicists mm. speculate that actually Time doesn't really exist, so that everything mm-hmm. happens at the same time. So then you've got these wormholes in space, mm-hmm. like how is that possible? So can you get a wormhole in time? Maybe some, you know, uh, mm-hmm. druids or somebody would say, well, that's like a portal to another world. Or So we don't really know, but all you do know is that sober people, have had conversations with other people who are not currently living. And there's no Mm -hmm. ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's a fact. It's a fact, and it's happened in front of people. It's happened in front of dozens of people, uh, and it's just not... Um, isolated incident or, or a handful of people like uh, Sir William Johnson sitting in this chair. We've come uh, across other um, stories at Ticonderoga where vast number of people have seen a very strange paranormal experience. And at Gettysburg, uh, a huge number of, of dignitaries have seen have seen a very strange uh, sight. Can you tell you the know? folks about that story? Sure. Um, Let's let's go. Uh, let's stick to Ticonderoga since we're since we're there. There's okay. Many. Um, let's talk about the King's Garden. Now, the King's Garden is a part of the site, which is uh, basically an 18th and 19th century uh, garden, as it would have been set up at that time um, by Mrs. Pell. She recreated a, uh, a typical garden of that era with uh, what would we we would call today heirloom fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. okay so they are the actual tomato that they would have eaten say a couple hundred years ago which are smaller and tastier and maybe not quite so red not quite so fake looking mm. and um, there's apple orchards there which have the, like you know a, a more juicy type of apple mm-hmm. it's not meant to travel great distances um, like our fruits and vegetables have to travel today so Taste doesn't take a back seat, you know, like they do today. So, anyway, there was a tour of this garden. It was very, very, very hot. 
and uh, one of the costume interpreters was dealing with an emergency and uh, a rather hefty lady had fainted and hit the ground while taking this tour mm-hmm. and he was on a phone there was a phone on the wall on this on the chalet at the king's garden and he was trying to dial the emergency mm-hmm. and some unseen hand mm. had grasped him by the cartridge box that was hanging over his shoulder at his waist Mm -hmm. and pulling it horizontally and pulling him away from the wall, hugging on him. And all the people who were taking the tour, may have been a dozen, may have been two dozen or more, Uh were saying, wow, how are you doing that? I'm not doing that. And some unseen force was pulling him away from that phone on the wall. Oh, gee. Very strange. Very and frightening. Very frightening. I would very say. frightening. And don't yeah. forget too the uh, the native connection to that to that area, which I, I want to mention before Please I do. forget. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the chaps that does work there now, an Amerindian, who is an employee of the park mm-hmm. and uh, works there twelve months a year, even when it's closed. He was uh, lives on the site. His daughter was home. She saw him come into the house and she passed by the bathroom and she saw her father standing there looking at himself in the mirror. And then about, she went back to say, well, how come you're home so early? Mm. And there was nobody there. And it was a dead end. It was at the end of the hallway. He couldn't have possibly got out. So an hour or two later, he came driving back up the driveway and into the house she said, how come you were home earlier like that? Uh, for what reason? You know, we got off early or what? He said, he wasn't home at all. Ooh. And, Ooh. Uh, and he's related the story to me also, and he calls it the trickster. Now, there's such a thing as a doppelganger. Maybe some of your listeners mm-hmm. have heard that. It's basically your double. That's right. And he's doing things that may or may not be proper. Okay. And in the morning, uh, my friend Wesley there, he's a Abenaki, and he will uh, sometimes jog up, run up through the woods to the fort. He mm-hmm. has to open the museum gift shop, turn off the alarms, and get everything ready for the people to come in, the volunteers and the employees to start at 9 o'clock. So one day he's, he was seen to be running up the road and through the woods up to the, up to the up to the uh, fort by the, the volunteers or the employees that man the cash and do the tours. And they didn't want to beat him to the fort in their car, so they just slowed right down and waited a few minutes until he would get in the fort to turn the alarms off and everything, open the lights and get everything ready for them. And uh, so they got in there and they saw him. But later they said, oh, we saw you uh, jogging up to the fort this morning because often he would do that. And he said, no, I, I didn't jog up, run up to the fort this morning. I drove up here. No, oh. no, you didn't. No, you didn't. He said, yes, I did. And he pointed out the window. There was his pickup truck. Oh. And he was also another time seen to be seen at two places at once. And another time uh, during the winter, he was doing some photography, and he took a picture of a deer in the field not too far away. And when he developed it, there was an image of a French soldier on one side and a native on the other. Isn't and he that said there incredible? Were no, there were no reenactors in the park. Nowhere near. And talking Whoa. about no reenact, talking about no reenactors in uh-huh. the park. 
okay? It had been a dream of uh, one of the interpreters to go down to Gettysburg and, mm -hmm. and work there because of the fact is that that's also hollowed ground mm -hmm. and also one of the most haunted places on Earth, especially for military. Oh, is it? I didn't know that. Oh, oh yeah. Even during the daytime there, it's it's just uh, Ghosts a real are experience. Everywhere. Oh, it's a, there. There's something there. Mm. There's no. There's no question. Without about question, that. Eh? yeah. And um, the just let me tell yeah. folks who, yeah. who we're speaking with. Sorry, sure. we're speaking with Wayne Franks. He's a military historian, military reenactor, and he's relaying to us paranormal experiences and stories that he's heard over the years from the military reenacting battlefields, ghosts that have been seen, spooky things, scary things, heartwarming things. And what's very interesting is he's telling us stories that have happened to him himself uh, right in his own home. You're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM and www.cklu.ca on the Internet. You're listening to Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland. Now, folks, when you're listening at home, don't do this in your car. If you're at home, turn the lights off. This is going to creep you out because Wayne's got some really spooky stories for you. You're listening to Night Fright, Wednesday nights from 10 to midnight on CKLU 96.7 FM. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. Right now we're going to go back to Wayne. And uh, Wayne, please tell the folks this spooky, scary story. Turn those lights off at home. <laughs> We were talking, touching on uh, Gaysburg. That's right. Gaysburg being the most haunted site uh, probably in the, in the U.S. Uh, in general, you know. Uh, the White House is very haunted as well. And I use the word haunted because there are just so many unexplained things that's happening there. I'm not using it necessarily in the... Just to interrupt you for a second about sure. that, George Bush has seen President Lincoln's son and not only George Bush has seen President Lincoln's son, but Chelsea, President Clinton's Clinton. daughter, saw Lincoln's son also. Lincoln's son died, uh, I think it was scarlet fever, if I'm not mistaken, right in the very room that Chelsea was sleeping in. Wow. So yeah. there's all kinds of spooky things going on there. Sorry to interrupt Absolutely. you, Wayne. Yeah, well, you know, uh, who knows why, but... Uh, I think anywhere that has a, a, a very strong emotion has 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 things um, recur like like this, and whether we're there to see them or not, who knows whether they go on all the time and you just happen to witness it, uh, or is it waiting for you? Mm. And uh, at the point at the Gettysburg, where a chap I knew had his dream fulfilled because he he filled in for the National Park Service. Mm -hmm. From one of his friends who actually was at Gaysburg, so he was so enthralled that he was there to give a tour. And a group of executives, businessmen, whatever, were were there that day, and he was giving them an exclusive tour of the fort. He was standing facing them and explaining something at some point in the field of battle, which is huge. And he uh, noticed that they were more like looking past him for some reason. And not, not really focusing on him, they were focusing on something else. So he found that a little unnerving, and he finished up his talk. And uh, then they started to open up and say, wow, that was really great, that military maneuver that was going on in the bush there. 
platoon of, I guess they were, I think they were Confederates, had mm-hmm. come out and did some sort of a dividing of going into a column, uh, two from a line or in from a, a line into columns, and some special type of maneuver, and then peeled back into the woods. And they said uh, those uh, reenactors were really, really good, you know. Mm. Well, there were no reenactors. Mm. I saw it coming. Oh, man. And there were maybe 10 or 20 or maybe more of these executives or businessmen who were there. These people weren't all drunk. What did they see? Mm-hmm. And there were no reenactors there. No re- Yeah. And, uh, of course, at night there are so many things that, that have happened there. And uh, also in Pennsylvania, not too, too far away is, is the Battle of Brandywine. That's right, Brand- yeah. Brandywine Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chad's Ford, where Andrew Wyeth did his painting. Well, um, down that area, the National Park um, has many homes that were taken over by Lafayette and, and Washington and the British farmhouses, of course, and uh, beautiful stone farmhouses. And... Um, People lived near the actual battlefield. Battlefield was just uh, just north, up I think Highway One, of the uh, actual park. The battlefield is actually not a park. It's open for development, and I I did the last reenactment that was slated for that area before it was going to be developed. I don't know if they did develop it. And uh, people that lived down there were telling me that uh, it would be in the kitchen, and they would see like a bluish light, white bluish light mm-hmm. and flickering and flashing and uh, one woman looked out the kitchen window and saw the British marching through her backyard actually from the, just from the waist up couldn't see their legs or anything uh-huh. but from the waist up and they were marching thousands of them marching up into position wow. uh, unbelievable yeah. eh? and at the park itself at the National Park Brandywine uh-huh. they have a, a reception center with a small museum and an extensive library in the back, and they've got thousands of reference books. Mm-hmm. And these are on heavy steel shelving. Well, one day, something black and evil got into there when they were there and started going back and forth in that room, mm-hmm. throwing those 1,000-pound, 2,000-pound shelving units around like, like they were matchsticks. That's just crazy. destroyed the whole place. And left. And left, and that was it. Yeah, everything was all askew. Everything was askew. And that was extremely scary, and those people don't really like to talk about it today. Yeah, I wouldn't want to talk about that particular one either. That's a little bit more than just a reenact- uh, soldiers' apparitions. It's more threatening and violent. That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, people tell me if you see something that's black, that's not a good thing. That's what I've been told also. Um, Wayne, we're at the top of the hour again. When we come back, I would very much like to go back into your own personal experiences in your home, if that's good with you. We could do that. Okay, great. Folks, we're going to take a quick break here. You see somebody in uniform out there, folks, downtown or something, you say thank you because the reasons why we have this beautiful country is because they put their lives on their line every day in Afghanistan. A good friend of mine, Wendy's husband's just gone back over for a second tour. I want to wish him well and safe journey there and back. Thank you guys for doing what you do because without you, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have nothing. This one's called Task Force Kabul. We'll be right back, folks.
Night Fright, Wednesday nights from 10 to midnight on CKLU 96.7 FM. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. And we are back. And tonight, folks, right now, we are talking with Wayne Franks. And Wayne Franks is a military reenactor and a military historian. And he's telling us some pretty creepy stories there, Wayne, tonight. He's telling his personal stories about what happened at his home and also stories uh, from his reenactment sites. And uh, right now, Wayne's going to go back into one of the stories that took place right in his own home about a little girl and her mother. How you doing, Wayne? Welcome back. Doing great, Brent. Great. This Good is to be here. Great, great show tonight. Um, Thank I, you. I hope everybody is listening. Turn those damn lights off. Get into the mood. Let's Ooh, rock. Absolutely. <laughs> Skitty. <laughs> Turn right. the lights off. Sit in the dark and get creeped out with the wind blowing here and the rustling leaves. Right now we're back with Wayne Franks. Yes, Brent. Thanks, so, Wayne. Yeah. You know, you don't have to have the lights off. To be creeped out? Because yeah, I've got the lights, all the lights on here in the studio if you saw this place because I'm creeped out. Just listening to these stories. Right. When, when I was in my broadcasting days in Montreal, mm -hmm. I... I worked overnight shift at uh, at an AM station, and a uh, few weird phone calls, and I had the lights on. It was pretty spooky in that uh, in that lonesome uh, loft of a radio studio all by mm. myself. So I know just what it is. But to have the experiences of um, visual visual or auditory hallucination or experiences. You don't need to have the lights off. Uh, what happened to, uh, in our house? We we had those two stories which I alluded to before about middle of the night, about two thirty in the morning, a, the scurrying footsteps of like moccasins and which dopplerized and the sound went around and around and around and faded out. And then two months later in ninety two, um, nineteen ninety two, uh, a platoon of soldiers marching through my house in, in eighteenth century cadence, one step per second with hard soled leather shoes. Um, Incredible but, story. It Incredible. wasn't until at least ooh, 10 years, at least 10, 12 years after that, 14 years after that, that the first manifestation of uh, apparition happened. It was um, here in this room, actually, that I'm speaking in. I'm speaking from my daughter's uh, bedroom that we made in the basement. Okay. And um, the doorway, there's a doorway that leads into my playroom. And the stairway leads upstairs. So my wife one day, two o'clock in the afternoon, was watching a soap opera downstairs for some reason. And she has her, uh, the door is like behind her. It goes into this room. If you can imagine just inside this bedroom, there's a door immediately to the right, if you're looking out, which is my recording studio. And then a door to the left, which goes into my garage. So um, she, for some reason, decided to look over her shoulder. And there she saw what she describes as a Victorian-era woman walk across the doorway as if she had gone from my recording studio into the garage. Mm. And she said her hair was brown, was up in a bun. She had a white frilly shirt mm -hmm. on that covered her neck and a blue gown or, or long dress, I believe it was, and gave a very detailed description, even though she saw her only for a fleeting moment, and will only tell you to this day that it was all in her own head. And um, prior to this, 
or concurrent and prior to this, my girls had auditory hallucination that they were being sung to as they were trying to get to sleep lullabies. Really, eh? They were sung to, in this room here, lullabies by a woman, possibly a child too. And not too, too long after the so-called Victorian mm -hmm. woman, we call her, uh, or Evangeline, my, my wife has just nicknamed her, um, my youngest daughter was going to show my wife something at the computer, and uh, they sat down in front of the black screen, because the computer was yet to be turned on, mm -hmm. and in the reflection of the monitor, of the unlit monitor, they see a girl sitting with her legs up, folded oh. up, sitting on the floor behind them, with her long, wavy hair and her frilly dress and her long white socks and her little black shoes. <sighs> Just the stereotypical Hollywood image. Little girl. And so they both turn around look to look. Nothing. Nothing. Then they both turn around and look back at the screen. Nothing. Nothing. Gone. Just in a flash. Oh, yeah. So Whoa. we think... And um, so uh, let's... Um, Let's finish with them. There's one more appearance, um, which just happened a couple of years ago. I'll get back to the, the lady and her possible daughter in a second. Okay. But up on my main level, on my main floor, right? Um, this is what we call a duplex here in, in LaSalle in Montreal. We have a lot of them, but very, very top floor is rented out, and the first floor in the basement is for the owner, you know? Right. So Separate entrances. Yeah. Yep. So going up to our, you know, from the playroom up to our main living floor, um, my wife had seen a very tall, skinny man in tights standing at the front door. And not more than a week or two later, my youngest daughter, same daughter, mm -hmm. um, saw him standing around the back door in cut-off shorts, cut-off jeans. That's same creepy. man. Yeah. Same man. Tall, skinny man. But he was like from the 1970s type of the way he dressed, you yeah. know? And um, so getting back to this uh, woman and her daughter, and I was wondering, like, it seemed to tie in so well with with uh, with the uh, lullabies mm. and that the kids have been telling us for a long time that had been sung to them, and we thought, oh, they're just hearing something, you yeah, know? Yeah, they're kids, just, right? Yeah. Just imagining something mm -hmm. off in the distance, and, you know, it's not really there. Because sometimes you hear a song, you think you hear a song, but you don't, you know, mm -hmm. and I was thinking mm -hmm. that that was the, the type of thing. But I mentioned that to a coworker, a former coworker of mine, who was the past president of the LaSalle Historic Society. And he told me that the land that was behind us was a golf course. And before that was the Ogilvy Farm. And before that was a Somerville Farm. And that Mrs. Somerville and her daughter are buried on that property. Oh, man. And my, my son's friend had said that his father used to play around this area here before our duplexes were built, and right along where our backyard fence uh -huh. is, there were tombstones. Is that right? And about five, six years ago, Holy seven years God. ago, my neighbor, Kitty Corner, to us, uh -huh. um, who passed away since, she said that she was she's a Scotswoman, she's big on gardening, and she was digging up things to, you know, prepare her beds for tomatoes and everything, sure. and she swears that she's came to flat stones, which had been tombstones, which were toppled over. Oh, you're kidding. So they never moved the graves. Right. 
Oh, man. Yeah. And when I asked the author of a book on the LaSalle area, yeah. he had a little cross where, my coworker friend, where they had a, a little cross where the cemetery was. It was placed approximately in the middle of the farm. And I asked him, well, why did you place it there in the middle of the farm, the family, mm-hmm. Somerville family cemetery? He says, well, I just placed it there on the map in the book because I didn't know exactly where the private cemetery would be. But he said it would make sense that it would be at the perimeter of the property as opposed to in mm-hmm. the middle somewhere, because you would have to farm around it. So later on, that area became the rough of the LaSalle Golf Course. Oh. So these stones were all overgrown with sumac and whatever, and were probably toppled and fell over and then got buried over when they yeah. when they did that. So we're thinking that that's uh, Mrs. Somerville and her daughter that paid us a visit. You know, that makes perfect sense. I'm just wondering if... Um Maybe somebody would want to do an excavation and see if, indeed, the graves are still there. Could be. You'd have to get some ultrasound-type equipment and, yeah. and, you know, and do that. But one time I was um, in my studio here, and I was playing the piano. I'm a classical composer mm-hmm. and pianist, as you know. And um, I felt a real strong presence. And I just said out loud, Mrs. Somerville? And from that point on, I've very, 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 very seldom ever had that feeling of presence again. Isn't that funny? You had the presence of mind to actually speak her name. And it seemed like all she wanted was maybe recognition. recognition. Maybe I'm drawing way too much. No, I don't think so. Um, as I said, we had Michelle Desrochers on. Uh, she was relating a story where her little girl had gone into her bathroom and had witnessed a fellow hanging there. She went and told her mother, because both are clairvoyant, that wow. indeed there was a man hanging in the bathroom. And her mother said, don't worry, now that he's had recognition, he's going to go away, and indeed he'd gone away. So what you're relating to me, Wayne, makes perfect sense. Perfect, perfect sense. Wow. It's incredible how there seems to be a commonality between different ghost sightings, and almost like there is an unspoken law or something that once you recognize them, then they do go away for some reason. Right. Yeah. Right. That, that's very strange that you say that because an unspoken law it's like anytime you have a bad spirit in the house and they're talking they usually say two words get out yeah you know it's yeah. like yeah the amityville horror thing yeah yeah i mean it's uh it's kind of silly and it, it's kind of uh cliche you know mm-hmm. but um there was certainly nothing cliche about the the sightings um maybe she was attracted to your music that's possible um Whatever these spirits, ghosts, entities, apparitions are, mm-hmm. um, it is true uh, that they can be attracted to uh, to music. Uh, I remember the the uh, manager of uh, Fort Wellington in Prescott, Ontario, mm-hmm. had said that there people have seen this soldier ghost there all the time. You're listening to Night Fright Wednesday nights from ten to midnight on CKLU ninety six point seven FM. Your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. He appears as basically a white light near a window. And uh, a lot of people think it's just uh, just a trick of your eye. But uh, one time they were sitting down at this long table and one of the uh, interpreters was practicing the fife. (laughs) And uh, they had a Ouija board out. And they got this guy, they got the name of the guy, the regiment of the guy, Timothy, I forget now, 
I've Tennessee heard so many bumper. creepy stories and weighing a bit with Ouija boards, and we did discuss that also. With yeah, and uh, and uh, they found out that he was actually sitting in the chair beside the guy who was practicing the fight to be oh, like the music. Isn't that a credible story? Yeah. Holy Like cow. the music. He was attracted to that, and he, he just... He was attracted. Hell, he yeah. just wanted to jam. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. Um, we are indeed speaking with Wayne Franks tonight. He's telling some incredible, incredible stories about ghosts that have been seen on military reenactment sites. Wayne is a military historian of great depth, as I'm finding out as we go through this interview tonight, and I'm learning so much. And he's also a military reenactor. And he's relating those stories from reenactment sites, but also he's telling his own personal stories. And you're listening to CKLU, 96.7 FM, www.cklu.ca. We are now streaming, folks. You can tune us in on your Internet, no matter where you are in the world, even in Montreal, where Wayne's calling from. Um, if you want to ask Wayne some questions, we do have an email. You can email us here at nightfrightshow at gmail.com. And, Wayne, let's go back in and talk a little bit more about your own personal experiences. Sure. You had mentioned in a pre-production meeting something about some white orbs and some pretty creepy things about stabbings and things like that that went on around them. Yeah. Uh, very, very, very strange uh, cases of uh, a lot of the homes um, around the older part of LaSalle, Verdun, the point. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of strange, strange things have been seen in these homes. These were basically working class homes for uh, people who um, were at the lower scale of society uh, built from the 1920s and back. There are all types of strange things that have uh, gone on there. Um, personally, I haven't seen it, but in, in my family, uh, one of my children had a place here in, in LaSalle in the older uh, section, which is called mm-hmm. uh, Bronx Park. And uh, uh, he had seen a white apparition go down the hallway and into the living room. These places are all narrow, and all the rooms are off of basically one hallway and until you get to the back of the house, and then there's basically a kitchen and a bathroom, you know. They're very cramped uh, places. And uh, he saw that during the day, and uh, immediately following that, I believe there was the death of his girlfriend's aunt at age 40 who dropped dead at work for no known reason. And then the entity was seen at night, which is like um, mm-hmm. in subdued lighting, it appears dark. In almost virtually no light, it appears darker. Oh, and, man. Uh, right. Whenever it did make an appearance, uh, their cat got run over. Um, Another uh, friend or relative died. The neighbor next door uh, committed suicide by slashing himself to oh. death. Uh, so this was an evil entity then? Yeah, but I do believe that was a... I know from a fact that there was a very evil entity. And in fact, they had a clairvoyant had a, have a look at it. Is that right? And what was and the result? clairvoyant was saying that it was uh, basically someone in that house had witnessed a murder on the street and knew who was perpetrator but didn't come forward. Oh, man. Also, there was a mortuary across the street, too, and uh, ask anyone who knows, uh-huh. every mortuary uh-huh. is haunted. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and even though the mortuary had been closed and it was being converted into condos, <laughs> oh. 
it was still uh, operating as a, as a mortuary, as a mortuary. When, uh, when my son lived there. Yeah. So, Speaking uh, about mortuaries. You're listening to Night Fright, Wednesday nights from 10 to midnight on CKLU 96.7 FM. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. Folks, if you've ever been to Montreal, in the middle of Montreal, there's a mountain. It's called Mount Royal. And on Mount Royal, there's a huge graveyard. Wayne's got a story he's going to tell us about some friends of his that picked up quite an interesting hitchhiker along the way. I was wondering if you could relate that story to us now, Wayne. Right. Well, my reenactor friend, uh, one of his sons, um, he uh, was up on the, on Mount Royal. We have two cemeteries up there. There's the uh, Catholic Cemetery and the Protestant Cemetery. They're very historic. We have people mm-hmm. who um, who built up great railroads, people who perished on the Titanic. Um, uh, we have the lady uh, who was the, the king and I. Uh, what was her name? She's up there, too. She's uh, up there. Van Horn's up there also when you mentioned The Van Horn, yeah. yeah. So many historic people. And I'm not saying that these cemeteries themselves are haunted because um, I, from what I've been reading and from what my understanding is, uh, people, if they're, uh, how can I say, people if they're dead, uh, <laughs> the, the spirit of, uh, of those who have passed, um, there's nothing in a, in a cemetery for them to, to do. They don't want to be with nothing. They, they want to be with the people who are, who are living and at the places where they, where they lived, apparently. So, very unlikely that you would find haunted cemeteries. There's, there's just, really not much there but you know really when you get down to it compared to places where people who are who are currently living at the forts and at you know at homes mm-hmm. and stuff that that's where you'll find strange things happen so one night a lady was hitchhiking up on the circular road uh, called Camille Ud actually circles the uh, the mountain mm-hmm. and uh, she looked like you know, quite attractive, you know, from behind, and then there are a carload of guys, you know. Yeah, your friends are your friends are pigs, Wayne. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> what can I tell you? They were just trying to be kind of nice and uh-huh, kind of you know, nice. Yeah, yeah. Right? Okay. Help, yeah, yeah. Okay. Help this poor girl out, and when they pulled over to talk to her, mm-hmm. she was absolutely hideous. Oh my God! Absolutely hideous, and they changed their mind. And I don't know if she had actually gotten in the car and they kicked her out or they were just talking to her at the side of the road. But the conversation didn't go too well after she found out that they were just going to take off. And she put a curse on them. Really? And I don't know if it was a driver or the person that she was talking to in the front seat, but she was uh, talking to them and mm-hmm. um, more or less told them about this, uh, that she was upset that she wasn't going to be picked up. So the short of the story is they all, like, laughed it off and sped off and sped away. Uh, but not too long afterwards, uh, at the chap's house, mm-hmm. all the drawers started to open. Oh, Things my. started to come off the shelves. Oh and fly across the room and smash on the floor and bounce off walls and cutlery would fly and uh, it was just 
so terrifying to them that they actually had an exorcism performed in the house. Really? To get out uh, to this, get the, whatever yeah, it was that was scared out of the house. What a story. That's incredible. Um, we're coming up to the bottom of the hour again. When we come back, Wayne, I'd, I'd like you to relay some more stories to us about... Uh, this is a fascinating, fascinating evening, folks. We're speaking with Wayne Franks, military historian and military reenactor. And Wayne is relaying some stories to us about... Incredible stories, actually, that have taken place on reenactment sites right around North America and some of his personal experiences. And those are pretty creepy in their own right. I hope you're as creeped out as I am, because I don't want to be alone in this, folks. If you're home alone, turn those darn lights off and get into it. The wind's blowing outside. It's cold. It's creepy. We'll be back in three and a half minutes. This one's for the troops that are fighting in Afghanistan and keeping us safe. This is called Thunder Run.
listening to Night Fright, Wednesday nights from 10 to midnight on CKLU 96.7 FM. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. Now your host, Brent Holland. And we are back, and I hope you folks are as creeped out as I am, because tonight we're speaking with Wayne Franks, military historian and a military reenactor, and he's telling us stories about military reenacting sites and all the creepy ghosts that have been seen around there, people having bad experiences and indifferent experiences, and Wayne's relaying some of his own experiences to us right now. Wayne, I wonder if we could just continue and pick up a couple of more stories. There was one in particular about shadow people I was going to jump into and uh, talk a little bit about if you don't mind well I always thought shadow people were was something stupid and uh, if you remember Spielberg in the 80s had uh, amazing tales amazing Mm -hmm. stories Mm -hmm. that great series uh, which you can buy on DVD in in sets you know and one of them was um, in the series about shadow people and I just thought this was like made up by kids, you know, it's like the boogeyman under the bed, you know, this, uh, you know, a, a dark apparition of, of some sort, and I, I always thought it was just, you know, kid stuff, and until I bumped into a co-worker who grew up in an area that was just rife with shadow people, and, um uh, uh, in Point St. Charles, as you might know, is a very... Uh, Can you describe good, the area for us? Uh, yeah, it was a working class area from the 1840s, 1850s. The Irish uh, settled there, right, during the potato uh, Right, yeah. right. They built the Victoria Bridge, they helped mm-hmm. uh, build the canal and public works, and uh, were involved with uh, uh, manning the fire department and the police department, somewhat similar to the Irish community of uh, communities of Boston and New York. No mm-hmm. different here. That's right. You know, and the fact it, that they were Catholic didn't hurt at all because um, there you many of them, you know, married into the French-Canadian mm-hmm. Catholics here. As a matter and, of fact, the uh, the biggest St. Patrick's Day parade, second biggest St. Patrick's Day parade next to New York's is in Montreal in North America. Right. In the world. And, and I believe ours is the longest lived. Is that I think right? We started, I think we started before New York. I've had many a good uh, time with green beer in Montreal on that particular day, but I digress. Let's continue yeah. with the spooky stories, not the scary yeah. stories. <laughs> well, my friend, uh, my friend Alan had uh, related to me uh, a story about um, about shadow people, and, mm. and when I was sitting down talking to him one one afternoon, uh, he began to tell me some stories about this. And uh, I'll start off with the, with the main story. He was at was it visiting his mother's house, I believe, and was in the point. This is going back six years when he relayed this story to me. Anyway, he saw this shadow coming down the hallway, and he figured, oh, this is an this is somebody broke into the house. Somebody's in the house, and I'm going to tackle this guy. Mm-hmm. I would have done that too. I would have figured, yeah, somebody's in the house, and let's go. You know. Right. Yeah. Well, when this whatever came by him mm-hmm. and he tackled it, there was nothing there. Oh, man. It was oh, basically, man. And, and, it was basically oh. like, the way I can describe, I guess, yeah, you know, I, I've seen something similar myself after he described that at Villamard where I was actually working in a school, in the school that he was working in. 
And um, he was describing to me, and this is exactly what I had seen, although but there, there were children in this elementary school playing in the gym. And um, I was going through a corridor, and I thought I saw a little kid run by, cross my path, mm-hmm. and crouch down as if he was picking up a ball. Mm. And that scenario is what he told me that they see all the time in these houses, in the point and in uh, Verdun, where like a little kid will cross your path and then crouch down as if he's picking up a ball. And uh, it's it's daytime. And I guess the only thing to describe it is it's not quite shadow, but it's like a piece of, uh, would you say, uh, uh, cellophane. That has a little bit of a, oh. a little bit of a tint in it, so you could just see that yeah, it's yeah, yeah. slightly um, gray, you know, like just a little bit of yeah, a just a little hint of tint, a tint. like a tint yeah. film to your window, but uh-huh. to a car window, but not not dark, just like barely there, and no substance around it at all. Right, with these basically little kids, and they like I said, they run past you, and they then crouch down like they're picking up a ball. And that's exactly what he described to me, and it's exactly what I saw in an elementary school. And there's no way that the kid could cast shadow, a real actual shadow, um, my way at all. It's just impossible. And um, getting into schools now, of course, I, I work for, for a school board here mm-hmm. and uh, for many years. This is a story that I've completely forgot about until now that we're talking about schools. But there's a school in Montreal West called Elizabeth Ballantyne School. And there was a story circulating there that that place was haunted. Now, I never knew anything about this. Mm-hmm. I never knew anything about this. Apparently, a, a boy had fallen down the staircase and broken his neck. That's horrible. Many decades ago. That's uh, that's the story, and I feel so bad for yeah. the little boy in this family. The short of the story is, one night I was working overtime at the school, and uh, anyway, that afternoon, the, the day man was still there, and uh, I'd come from my school to, to go over to his school. Mm-hmm. This would be about 10 years ago, Okay. between 98 and 2000, okay. put it that way. After the ice storm. Yeah, and okay. uh, <clears throat> so I was there and uh, told me that uh, the week before they had just received a whole shipment of computers in the school in the computer room in the top floor, and that somebody had used tools to get through the door to break in mm-hmm. and clean out the computer lab. So I was just told this story, and they had yeah. just received replacements for it, I believe, at the time, that I was working there, and he told me, well, just make sure that all the alarms are on tonight before you leave, because we don't want anybody breaking in, mm-hmm. you know, and all this stuff, of course, and we want to make sure that the all the motion detectors are on and whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. So I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. I'd worked at that school on and off as, uh, you know, as my either I was assigned to that school for a few nights or just filling in, you know. And the short of the story is that there's a three-floor school. There's two floors above ground and, and, a, and a, like what they call the basement, but it's actually at ground level. Okay, I understand. And it's like half yeah. underground, half above. Right, okay. it's one of those asphalt uh, basement type. You, you know mm-hmm. exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So um, I'd finished my middle floor. I'd finished the upper floor when there was staff in the building, got all the upper floor done, and was doing the middle floor with the offices, and I left that to among the last of it because 
offices are always occupied a little bit later and don't like working around people because you're in the, you feel like they're in, you're in their way. So anyway, I was finishing up around the office and I heard like power tools. And you're and supposed heard, to like, be alone in the school? Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Supposed to be alone. And you know when you, the sound of a power tool when you put it down on, sure. on concrete There's like a and it's above your head, yeah. you hear it. You know, like that little clunk of somebody putting down something and mm-hmm. pick up another tool. And I heard various tools. It sounded like I heard two people talking. So I said, wait a minute. This has got to be somebody's, maybe, and the house is facing. It's got to be an open garage door. Somebody's got a workshop, and it's a father with his teenager son or neighbor. They're talking. They're cutting wood. They're doing something. It's got to be, you know. But I couldn't understand why I would be hearing footsteps and and the putting down of tools. But maybe it's just coming in from the houses across the street. The sound's bouncing around the building and sounds like it's upstairs. Yeah, you would always default to try and find a um, a logical explanation. Right, because Lauren's school explanation. Because mm-hmm. Lauren's school in the point was built right on the sidewalk. And the sound from the people living across the street would come into that building and reverberate all over, and you mm-hmm. thought there were people in your building. Now, this school was of uh, the age of about ooh, to about 100 years old, this building. So um, I didn't know anything about this story, about this apparition, about this accident, uh, nothing of that nature at all. And so I heard this, and uh, I got pretty spooked. So I hurriedly finished with work I had to do on the middle floor. Mm-hmm. I came downstairs and already done what I had to do down there. I, I was about maybe 9.15 by that time, and I checked outside. I went out, and I looked out the door. I checked to see if any garage door was open or any windows were open or people were working on those homes or in those homes across the street. No. Nobody. Nothing. Zilch. Did you think and about I, getting the hell out of there? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> it was about quarter after nine. I called Central Alarm. I told them yeah. I'm putting on the alarm switches, and I'm getting out of here as fast as possible. Smart if move. You, if you get a motion detector go off, top floor, call the police right away, because I don't want to go up there and find that people are up there. Oh, and yeah. I threw the switches on. Uh, none of the default lights came on. Mm-hmm. So... There, there couldn't have been really anybody there, uh, but I, I just took off. And you had to go through the basement with all the lights off to get to the only unarmed door that had a timer on it so you could get out. And so that was a panic run, let me tell you, to the parking lot where I got my car and I just floored it and got the heck out of there. <laughs> I would have done the, the same thing. Checking the back of my van to think that maybe somebody was hiding and lurking uh. in the back of my van and maybe will appear in my rearview mirror. Oh, I was terrified. And the alarm operator at the school board was laughing her head off when I told her this. And I didn't know why she would be laughing her head off until I found out what the story was from the principal at the school that I was currently working at during the day. Yeah. And he said, oh, well, you know, that popped up somehow with this subject. Oh, you know, that, that school is supposed to be haunted. You're listening to Night Fright, Wednesday nights from 10 to midnight on CKLU 96.7 FM. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. What? 
And then I told, he related to me the story, and uh, I said, oh, well, that's why I heard what I heard. It was all auditory illusion, auditory hallucination. And somehow I was prepped, my mind was prepped for hearing those noises that had probably happened the week before, but they re regurgitated themselves, recurred for me when I was on my shift. And there was nobody there because I called the school the next day. And there was nothing out of place. There was no signs of forced entry anywhere. There were no nothing tools. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. That's so. creepy, Wayne. Folks, we're speaking with Wayne Franks, military historian, military reenactor, and Wayne has been relating some stories to us about paranormal experiences both on and off reenactment military fields and also in his own personal life. Wayne, you mentioned before you're also uh, an accomplished composer. I know this for a fact because we used to jam together. Right. I've got a piece here, folks, that he's written, and he's such an accomplished pianist. You've got to hear this guy play. It's called On Gossamer Wing, and it's an original composition by Wayne. It's classical. You gotta hear this, folks. I'm just gonna play it right now, okay, Wayne? Sure, it's great. If you wanna make comments all the way through it, you're more than welcome to.
You're listening to Night Fright, Wednesday nights from 10 to midnight on CKLU 96.7 FM. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, thank you. That was just a, a pre-production uh, recording that I made just to um, get an idea of my arrangement because uh, the piece had been written in 96 and the introduction had been written only a couple of years ago and I'm just trying to get exactly what I would like to have arranged down pat before I go in the studio. Uh, it's studio Epilogue here in Montreal. Be starting uh, recording my uh, all original uh, compact disc, so we'll see how much material I have. Mm-hmm. I, I may actually add some Chopin list uh, as encores, depending on how much material I'm going to have. Uh, release date uh, probably sometime 2011, which will be um, my favorite composer's bicentennial birth, Franz Liszt. Very cool. Will you be recording on grand piano or, or upright uh, or uh, sample? Yeah, a six foot nine Beckstein, a 1906. Yeah, fully restored uh, with a Renner action, new strings, mm-hmm. and um, like I said, I'll be starting it, and um, I'll be um, just uh, doing it uh, one composition at a time. Every couple of months, I'll go in and hopefully uh, have one in the can until. Um, you know, I have uh, an hour's, a good hour's worth of, uh, of material. I've got several pieces to actually finish before then, too, you know? Well, if they're all the quality of that, it's going to sell out. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, your oh, performance you. is astounding. Absolutely astounding. I, I can just see your fingers flying across the keys. That was done in one take. One take? Yeah. Oh, man. Done in one take on my laptop, which is... Uh, uh, have a little problem with the sound card on there for some reason or, or something. So there was some glitching. I was testing out a USB condenser microphone hmm. that's powered by USB only. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems to do the trick. And definitely for demo work, uh, it's a, a quick and dirty way to uh, to do something, you know. Now, what did but you perform on? I have an upright Bailey piano, which is uh, about, well, it's an upright, but it's a... a Basically, a studio height. It's not a fully upright, what they call upright grand. Oh, I see what you mean. But yeah, uh, yeah, it's yeah. the family piano from uh, from um, from Detroit, Michigan. When my family, mother's family, relocated from uh, Lachine to uh, to Detroit about 1924-25, and they they mm-hmm. sold their gave their piano away in Lachine, and then they bought a new one in Detroit. So that's the piano that had followed the family back here in 1930. And uh, that's the piano that resides in my uh, in my studio here. Nice. It sounds really yeah. good, actually. Yeah, it was that's just tuned, and yeah. it was just tuned, and um, that's why I decided to uh, pop the lid open and you know put the uh, put the mic out and um, try out the uh, USB mic. And I've got, of course, more equipment here. Uh, the next time I want to do a very quick demo, I have my um, my studio set up here. You know, a multi-track mm-hmm. system. Yeah, that's right. Stuff like that. So uh, the next one will be cleaner and better. But like I say, it was only a, a working guide uh, for me, and I emailed a few of them out to uh, to good friends and family because people have been telling me, you know, you've Absolutely. got to put Absolutely. your stuff out. And yeah. uh, nothing is forever. And one day, uh, you know, when I go... Music goes because this has not been written down, and uh, none of these pieces have been actually formally recorded. 
besides a few video uh, videos of me playing at functions at work mm-hmm. and at family mm-hmm. reunions, you know. So uh, it's all very transcendental. It's about flight. And it's about personal flight and personal freedom. So use it as a metaphor? To grow, mm-hmm. yeah. It's been a fantastic evening. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm just going to do the wrap-up now. Sure. And we have indeed been speaking with the very talented, very capable, incredible military historian, military reenactor, Wayne Franks from Montreal. And he's been telling us creepy stories from reenactment sites right around North America. And he's also been telling us really creepy stories about his own experiences right in his own house and uh, around his house. It's been an absolute blast, Wayne, spending the past two hours with you. Sure, um, it's been fun. going to have to have you back on again. That being said, Wayne, I want to thank you again. Well, thank you, Brent. It was, uh, it was a pleasure. Fantastic, my friend. Thanks for listening, folks. This has been Brent Holland, your host for Night Fright. We'll see you soon. Wednesday nights from 10 to midnight on CKLU 96.7 FM. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio.
Still running. 